Well, good morning and welcome to your DIY Health Radio here on the Spreaker Radio Network and simulcasting on free conference call. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It is Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. And this program is meant to provide natural healing information only and is in no way meant to replace the advice of a competent medical professional, assuming you can find one. I search for and present to my listeners natural natural modalities that simply assist and augment the body's ability to heal itself. The body wants to fix itself. The body knows how to fix itself. It has a God-given innate ability to do so. The only thing that's missing is the raw materials. And when you put those back into the mix, stand back and wait to be amazed because your body's going to do some really cool stuff. Now, you can visit my website at yourdiyhealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R-D-I-Y, like do-it-yourself, health, H-E-A-L-T-H, yourdiyhealth.com. There's all kinds of information there. All the products we talk about are there, including the terahertz frequency devices, which are featured prominently at the top of the homepage. We've got the original iTeraCare products that um, people have been having great results with for the last year and a half, at least uh, since I've been working with them. And uh, uh, they just had a price increase, though. Not huge, but uh, the classic wand went from 380 to 400 the Premier went from uh, 1140 to 12, and the Pro went from 3800 to 4000. So uh, that's that. However, we now also have the Oli Life products, which, quite honestly, if you're considering anything other than the classic iTeraCare, I would highly recommend instead you get the Oli Life because they're, quite honestly, better products, better made. Uh, work just as well if not better give great results and pricing is much much more easy on the wallet um, the foot devices made by iTeraCare are 1300 and 4500 the Oli Life P90 is superior to both of those products and is only 1230 I believe I think that is 1230 if I remember right I'm going from memory from the website um but it's much less put it that way um and i will tell you for sure here in just a second i'm just going back to the my website yeah 1230 for the p90 and the cell essentials wand is only 720 and quite honestly it's better than the pro for iteracare you know the only thing honestly and this is the whole thing about me i want to be honest with my people i talk to um the only iteracare product i would buy at this point is the classic wand for 400 and only if you just could not possibly afford a little bit more to get the only life cell essentials wand which by the way comes with a oscillating stand that normally will cost you at least 200 dollars if you um, go to find one so you know you could buy the the classic for 400 and then put another 200 into the uh, stand or for $130 more, $120 more, you could get the um, Only Life Cell Essentials with the stand and a really good case that carries all of it and will give you much better performance. And it will last a whole lot longer. Um, right now, as far as I'm concerned, iTeraCare is strictly the entry level unit with the classic. I would not spend my money on the other ones. All of the Oli, or I have every single thing 
that Itericare makes, and they're all in boxes in my basement. When I got my P90, everything else got put away because it works better, it's easier to use, and it's less expensive. You know, like I said, at, at $1,230, um, it does better. I get better results with that device than I was getting with the Pro Wand and the Bio for, you know, $4,800 or $45 for that. Total of $8,300 of products at the time. And the uh, $1,200 uh, Only Life P90 was giving me better results. And I didn't have to move, you know, wand myself. You just put your feet on it, and it does the rest. So just just being honest with you, that's my personal opinion and perception based on actually having all the products and using all the products. There are many people above me in Itericare, unfortunately, who are bad-mouthing the Olilife products and have never used them. I've heard those things, and I said, I wonder if he's actually done one of them or got one, or is he just trying to protect his business? And I personally decided to spend the money on the P90, which was the only thing available in the U.S. at the time, and I because I wanted to find out for sure. I wanted to know the truth because I had heard some other people who had built quite big uh, Itericare businesses and switched over to Only Life. And uh, I was quite surprised, honestly. Um, we haven't even officially opened in the United States. They're still in pre-launch. And it only took me a week and I think it was eight days total to get my device shipped from overseas. So they got much better uh, uh, processing for orders. You know, granted, uh, Itericare gets them out pretty quickly to you now, but they've got, you know, I think 25 or so uh, warehouses in the United States. If they were shipping from overseas, it probably would have taken a whole lot longer. Um, but the Olilife P90 came from overseas in, uh, in quick time. And the other thing is they have, I think it's 17 manufacturing centers, and they own them all. So they're not contracting with other companies to produce their products. They're making them themselves, so they have much better control over quality control, which is quite obvious. Um, that's another problem. Itera has been plagued with uh, quality control issues, especially in the classic ones, um, which is a shame because it's a great product. I'm not saying that only or Itera care products aren't good. I'm just saying only life. Number one takes it to a whole new level in performance and results and their quality control is stellar. You know, I personally have sold you no know, good grief, a couple of hundred, of the Itericare products, and probably 30% of those of the classics have gone belly up in less than a year, which is a shame. And the person I deal with with Only Life, who's one of the top people, has sold hundreds of the P90s and the, and the Wands and has yet to have anyone have any problem with any of their stuff. So that should give you an idea. Anyway. They're there. Pricing's on there. Uh, ordering a capability is there. But if you have any questions, hit the uh, contact me button, and I will be happy to uh, assist you in any way I can. Also, while you're on the main site, be sure and hit the radio shows tab. At the top of the page is a link to the archive page set up through castbox.fm. Right below it is the rumble button. And if you click that, it'll take you right to our rumble page. Every show we've done since October of 2023 
So there's a bunch of them is there. And the nice thing about Rumble, I don't have to worry about them being released or dropped off or bumped. You know, like if, if I post something to Facebook or YouTube, I'm constantly getting notices. We've removed your content for whatever reason. And the thing is, they never tell you what it is they removed. So you don't know why or what you can put up and what you can't. They just said, we remove your stuff. I said, what a bunch of idiots. Now, I'm really getting sick of those uh, the censorship on YouTube and Facebook. But uh, Rumble doesn't give you that garbage. And that's a nice thing. So everything I've done is up there. And anybody that wants to see it can. If you like it, hit the like button. If you don't, hit the don't like button. Uh, but follow the page, if you would. And if you see something you like, like it. You know, click the like button. That makes a big difference. And their algorithm is how they kick it out to other people so more people can learn how to restore their health naturally. And that's a big thing in this day and age. So anyway, we got the rumble button. Right below that is the information on the shows we do when they're on and how you listen. And then at the bottom of the page is the link to the Facebook page set up for show as well as the Telegram channel. I really like Telegram, too, because they're the same as uh, Rumble. They do not censor anything. <laughs> I've never had anything removed for content or, you know, for violating their community standards or any other garbage. In other words, censorship. Whatever you put up there stays up there as long as it's not. Um, and I don't even I've never heard of this either, but I'm assuming they do. If it's um, obscene in nature, I would expect it to be removed. Uh, but I don't post anything like that. So that's no problem. So anyway, keep in mind the topics discussed and opinions mentioned on this show are those of the host and or guests and don't necessarily represent the opinions of the Spreaker Radio Network, Free Conference Call, uh, Rumble, any of the other platforms we're on, or the any of the alphabet agencies out there listening in. Hi, guys. Uh, have some coffee. Anyway, or any of the alphabet agencies out there listening in, nothing we say in the show should be construed as an attempt to diagnose, treat, or cure any kind of a health or wealth issue. It's all here for your education and entertainment purposes only, so that as a responsible adult, you can use this show as a jumping-off point to do your own research and due diligence to make sure that what you're doing and what you're trying is right for you. All righty then. That being said, there's a lot of information out there now, uh, more and more every day, coming out about just how deadly the COVID jabs are. And uh, what I've been saying all along, there was no pandemic. It was a plandemic. It was a uh, nothing more than a fear tactic to get people to take the toxic uh, lethal injection jabs. And what we're seeing is all the numbers out there everywhere. There was no increase in mortality when the alleged virus, which is boning, baloney, uh, if anything, it was a toxin. But whatever it was, when people started getting it, there were no extra deaths. You know, they had to prop up the numbers by basically turning every other form of death into a COVID death. And we've heard reports all over the world about that kind of thing. Somebody goes, you know, has a motorcycle accident, ends up in the emergency room. The first thing they do is test them for COVID. And then a person dies from his injuries from the wreck and uh, comes up positive. So, oh, that's COVID death. Somebody skydiving and their parachute doesn't open, goes splat, turns into a human pancake. They scrape up what's left with a spatula, do a swab of it. Oh, positive for COVID, COVID death. (laughs) And that's all they could do to boost the numbers. But every other form of death, including the flu, disappeared during COVID. And really, all COVID was was the flu. 
um, which is not caused by a virus. It's caused by toxic overload in your bodies and your body's doing a detox. So anyway, what all the scientists and all the researchers are finding, there was no increase in mortality um, during the so-called pandemic. It was not until the jabs were rolled out that we start seeing a skyrocketing number of deaths from the, co- from the jabs. The other thing is, there's probably actually a reduction in mortality, or would have been, had people been treated properly, um, prior to the jabs being rolled out, because most of the people that so-called died from COVID, really died, did not die from COVID, but they were taken to the hospital, and they were killed by the people in the hospital because of the government-sponsored, thank you, Fauci, um protocols they put you on remdesivir which shuts your kidneys down then they put you on and all of a sudden your lungs start filling with fluid so they put you on a ventilator and kill you had they given the proper treatment most of the people that were that died would have walked out on their own steam so you know the numbers were inflated uh, artificially And then at the same time, the ones that did really die from allegedly from COVID didn't die from the disease. They died from the treatment, kind of like cancer (laughs) in most cases. You know, most people don't die of cancer. They die from the chemo, the radiation, the surgery, and all that garbage. And, you know, the main thing is they die from the access to the medical community. And if you don't believe that, I encourage you to go to my website, yourdiyhealth.com. Click on the support info tab, and right at the top of that page, you will find a free PDF of Death by Medicine, which is probably 20 years old by now, but it's even more accurate today than it was back when it was written, except the numbers are more uh, are higher now. Uh, back then, it was 780,000 people a year on average died at the hands of MDs. And that's all causes, whether it's properly or improperly prescribed medication, botched surgeries, surgeries that worked, but they ended up with a uh, post-operative uh, post infection. Whatever the case, if you had contact with an MD and you died, it's in there. Now they pretty much had to separate out cancer because it's its own thing. You know, a million people a year die just from the treatment for cancer, uh, thereabouts. But the thing is, is when you add all these things together it's worse than heart disease it's worse than cancer it's worse than anything doctors are the number one cause of death in the u.s and most industrialized countries so if you really 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 want to protect your health fire your md you know listen to this show learn how you can do things for yourself and do your own research it's not that difficult especially now and Take care of, take responsibility for your own health and you will fare much better. But since the jabs have been rolled out, there's been a lot of information out there. And um, one of the big ones, if I can find it here, this is a um, Dr. Rancourt doing a presentation overseas. It's about 26 minutes long, but he's doing a presentation on uh, all-cause mortality and things like that. Um during covid and especially uh, after the jabs have been rolled out and i think it's very interesting might uh, want to i'll uh, get this set up with sharing so if you're on the uh, on the free conference call board and the information on how to do that if you've never done it 
is um, on the website under the radio shows tab. So um, it's ready to go, and here comes the video. Okay, I'm going to talk about something quite different. I'm going to talk about all-cause mortality. I'm not going to be concerned about what caused the death. We're just going to count deaths, and I'm going to show you data for Romania as well. And all of the graphs and results that I will be presenting are in several scientific reports that I myself and collaborators uh, have been writing for the last three or more years, and they can be found on this website, the scientific reports. And these, these are my main collaborators on the all-cause mortality research, and two of them are in the room here with us. They're from uh, Prague and uh, another place that I told them I wouldn't forget the name of, and I just did. I'm sorry about that, Jeremy. Um, and so I want to start the historic record almost 1900. I'll show some data starting in 1900. I want to start really at the beginning of COVID, if you like. Um, <clears throat> now, all-cause mortality, you're just counting deaths. And this is the case of France from 1946 on, just after the Second World War. And what you find everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere is that death is higher, is larger in the wintertime and it comes down in the summertime. And so it has a seasonal pattern that's very regular. This has been known for more than 100 years, and I would argue that it's not completely understood. I would argue that it's far from completely understood. But this is what the pattern looks like by month. So we're looking at mortality by month in France. And if you integrate by year, by cycle year, around each winter from summer to summer in France, it looks like this. So there can be an intense winter followed by a lower winter and so on. And the pattern looks like that. So since the end of the Second World War, mortality on a population basis has been decreasing mostly. And it's typically 1% of the population that dies in a given year. So this is the kind of data we're going to deal with. And that last year is the first year of the so-called pandemic. And now if we go to the USA to give another example, I can do all-cause mortality. This is by year now for a particular age group. This is the 15 to 24-year-old age group, and I've se separated into male and female. So you've got the two colors there. And this graph allows us to illustrate what you can see when you measure mortality, which is a hard figure. Nobody can tell you that the government didn't count the deaths correctly because they're very serious about counting deaths. And it's a legalistic process. And so this is hard data. And this is what you see. You see that there was an event in 1918. That event was recovered by the CDC and called the Spanish flu. I know, and there are several scientific articles that show that this was not a viral respiratory disease. <clears throat> No one over 50 years old died in that huge peak of mortality. Only young adults and families and teenagers died in that peak. And, you know, the rich didn't die in that period. So 
That was 1918. And then in the, in the United States, you have something called the Great Depression, huge economic collapse, followed by an economic related, uh, the Dust Bowl, which was an environmental catastrophe, partly. And those were the, the big hardships, recent hardships in the USA. And you can see the mortality there in both men and women in those periods. Then in the Second World War, you see that men have a mortality, whereas women do not. And I think we all understand why. And in the Vietnam War period, you can see that, that there's a hump in mortality for the men. This is what you can see in all-cause mortality. And so, in conclusion, I've been studying all-cause mortality extensively in more than 100 countries on all the continents except Antarctica, obviously, and uh, in great detail, by unit time, by week, by day, by month, by age group, by sex, and I can tell you that the only thing you can see in all-cause mortality data are the following things. Seasonal variations, like I explained. A maximum in the winter, and in the southern hemisphere, it's reversed. Their winter is our summer. That's when they have a maximum of mortality. In the equatorial region, there is no seasonal variation in mortality. There's no spikes. It's a flat line. So there's seasonal variation that follows the hemispheres. You can see wars, like I mentioned. You can see economic collapses, huge economic collapses that affect populations. You can see summer heat waves in northern latitudes that are not used to having a very hot period in the summer. That kills people, sometimes because they fall down the stairs when it's really hot. But it kills people, and you can see a peak that lasts about a week in, in one of these hot spells. You can see earthquakes right away. You see the earthquake. People get crushed by buildings. You count the dead, and you see a peak due to earthquakes. But we do not see or detect any of the CDC-claimed pandemics that occurred in 1957, 58, 68, 2009. Those pandemics, those so-called pandemics, do not give rise to any excess all-cause mortality that can be detected in any jurisdiction and, or by any means. Excess deaths cannot be detected on the national or state scale for these so-called pandemics. So they did not cause excess death, whatever they are. And then you have, uh, I explained 1918, and then we have the COVID period. And in the COVID period, there was a huge assault there were many, a multi-pronged assault against people, vulnerable people in many different jurisdictions. So depending on what the state did before they brought in the vaccines, I'll talk about the vaccines as well, but depending on what the states did, they caused excess mortality, sometimes huge amounts of it. And I'll show you examples of that. So, um, so, First, I want to tell you that something just happened socially as part of the propaganda, which is that the Nobel Prize was awarded for this so-called vaccine. And I want to show you how absurd this is, because all the politicians that were supporting this were claiming that tens of millions of lives were saved by the vaccine, this magical vaccine for which we had given the Nobel Prize. Well, we looked at that. We looked at the basis for that claim. And the basis for the claim is an article that appeared in Lancet Infectious Diseases in 2022 by Watson et al. And they claim that between 14 and 19 million lives were saved. 
So we, as, as physicists, as scientists, we said, okay, if that's what you're claiming, let's calculate and see what that would look like on the scale of all-cause mortality by time. And so let's start somewhere, and let's go to Canada, and we see the seasonal cycle. So this is all-cause mortality on a scale that starts at zero. And let's look at the seasonal variation. That vertical line is the de declaration of the pandemic. The very first peak you see in blue there is Canada killing elderly people and vulnerable people in hospitals and in care homes because of the aggressive initial treatments because they were concerned about this so-called pandemic. And this happened in many hot spots in Western countries, but it did not happen in any of the Eastern European countries or in Russia. So depending on the country, uh, depending on what they did, that's, that's the thing. It did not happen in Germany where they were not doing this. Okay. Then we go on and we bring in the vaccines and they are claiming that this vaccine, which is the, the number of vaccines is that gray curve. That's the cumulative vaccine doses being given in Canada. And what you see is they're claiming that, thank God we brought in the vaccines at that time because otherwise we would have had the mortality in red there. They're claiming that their vaccine saved us from having the mortality in red they, that they calculated. They're claiming that there would have been mortality like we've never seen in the history of a human society and that, thank God, this vaccine came at just the time when there would have been this incredible mortality and saved us and brought, brought down the mortality to basically the same level we've always had. That's what the vaccine did. Not halfway down, not somewhere in between, but just brought things down. This is the magic of the vaccine that is explained by the magic of mathematical models written by bought-out scientists working for bought-out politicians. So it is not true. The vaccine did not save lives. Um, in fact, and I'll show Romania. I'll skip some slides. This is, this is Canada again, but instead of showing raw all-cause mortality, we've corrected the mortality to show only the excess of mortality. And therefore you have a flat baseline until the pandemic, and then you can see the excesses that occur at various times, depending on what the government was doing. And again, the, the curve of predicted saved lives. Now we can uh, do this, um, oh, we can do this in the United States. The United States was a country that treated, that had many more vulnerable people health-wise than Canada, and treated them very aggressively. So the the, the, the baseline, if you like, excess all-cause mortality in blue there has huge features which you do not see in Canada. And this is a very strange uh, virus that we're dealing with here because it carries a passport. It refused to cross from the U.S. into Canada, despite the fact that it's thousands of kilometers of the two biggest exchange partners, you know, on the continent. The vaccine was not crossing borders. It didn't cross initially into Germany. When we draw maps of intensity of excess mortality, we see that the vaccine has definite passports depending on jurisdiction. In other words, this was not a spreading viral respiratory disease. Our conclusion from studying all the all-cause mortality, I'll tell you our conclusion before we get there, is that there, our data, this hard data, contradicts the idea that there was a particularly virulent pathogen that came onto the planet and that spread and that caused havoc by itself. 
Instead, what we see is that everywhere that there is excess mortality, you can understand it in terms of the incredible aggressive treatments that were done and the vaccines, which you can quantify. That's, I'm, I gave you the conclusion ahead of time. I'm skipping ahead a bit. But no matter. This is what Europe looks like. Overall Europe, or the countries that we were able to include here, it looks quite similar to the U.S., the situation in the U.S. Now let me show you Romania. In Romania, there is no excess mortality at the beginning, right after the pandemic is announced. That just is a feature of hotspots in the Western uh, European countries. But then there is a massive excess peak that starts. We're going to talk about that a little bit more because we don't I'm starting to understand it as I talk to people who know more about Romania. And then the vaccines are rolled out, and I know that Romanians didn't get vaccinated as, as maybe as much as others, but still, the claim in this theoretical paper is that the excess mortality would have been that red line if there had not been the vaccines. But what I see when I look at that pattern is that there is a peak right when you start rolling out the vaccines, then there's a really large peak when you roll them out again, and then there's, you see that last peak there is directly associated to the booster doses that we're giving. So I'm going to look at that in some detail at the end of the talk when I talk about Romania. So coming back to all-cause mortality, not this theoretical red line stuff of what theorists are telling us, but coming back to the hard data, this is what it looks like in the United States. <clears throat> so on the bottom, you have all-cause mortality by month. You have the vertical line in each graph that shows the announcement of the pandemic. And mysteriously, at the announcement of the pandemic, there are hotspots synchronously at the same time in hotspots around the world where there's this huge initial peak of mortality. I, I was the first to write an article about that and to point out that normally viruses do not follow political directives. And they don't, so it has to be something else. And also there's no evidence that there was spread in this feature. It happens synchronously in the whole Northern Hemisphere, for example. And there's no evidence that it then spread. It was localized. It stayed there. And it was due mostly to extremely aggressive medical treatments uh, because the, the medical teams were, were told, they were propagandized that there was this horrible, virulent thing that was just going to come down on us, and now we've just announced it's a pandemic. So they had a license to try whatever help they could give, and sometimes they prescribed too much, they entubed people with mechanical respirators, a ghastly thing to do, and the places that did this most aggressively, these treatments, and we can follow that in our data, had the largest peaks of this type. Northern Italy, uh, even Stockholm uh, was, you know, protecting the elderly especially, and they had a peak like that. And uh, New York City obviously is well known. So this, this is mainly the New York City peak that you see in the U.S. data here. Then the curve in the middle is all-cause mortality again, but by week now, finer time resolution. So you can see more of the details. And the curve on top is a blow-up of that. And what you see for the first time in recorded history uh, in the U.S. and the mortality history is peaks occurring in mid-summer in the United States. Unheard of. And so I put black dots there to show them. The first one occurs at a time when they were really aggressing uh, poor people who live in the, in the very hot southern states and the integrated mortality for that correlates with poverty. 
If you were poor, you died at that time. If you were not, you didn't die. And then they rolled out the vaccines. And the, the summer peak you get on rolling out the vaccine there is from what they called vaccine equity, which meant they hired thousands of people in the U.S. to go and vaccinate everyone who hadn't been vaccinated yet, who was resisting or who was far away in a care home. And they aggressively went and vaccinated all those people. It was funded by Gates and all those people. And they produced that huge peak of mortality in the U.S. In the US there. So that's what the U.S. Uh, mortality in recent times COVID looks like. If you look at now mortality in the U.S. by age group, you can see the age groups there, 0 to 24 years, 25 to 44, and so on. Before they vaccinate, the percent increase, the excess mortality expressed as a percent of the baseline mortality for the age group looks like that on top. And in the vaccination period, the age structure of mortality changes dramatically and shifts towards younger individuals. That doesn't mean that quantitatively the elderly were, were not dying. Most, most of the deaths are in the elderly, as you would expect, but this is expressed as a percentage of the baseline. So in those terms, it shifts to younger people. And in the U.S., the total excess mortality in the COVID period as a whole correlates perfectly with poverty in the state for the 50 states in the United States. You will never see this in social science, such a strong correlation. It's very rare. And not only is it a strong correlation, we call it, it's technically called a very good correlation when it's that value of, of the uh, correlation coefficient. And it goes through the origin, which means it's not just a correlation, it's a proportionality. The more poor you had in the state, the more people died in that state. Directly proportional. So this tells you that that's another thing that viruses don't do. They don't select to only kill poor people. That, that, that doesn't happen. That, 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 that's not a signature of a viral uh, infection. Um, so our model of what's been going on to cause mortality in the great majority of jurisdictions that we saw is the following model. We stress the literature. Well, first of all, there is what governments did. The socioeconomic impact, many people lost their jobs, lost their social contacts, lost their regular activities, lost their position in society. So incredible stress related to that. There was regulatory rules of all kinds. There was institutional pressures put on people. There were all kinds of conditions that you know about. And in some countries, it was much more violent than others. In Peru, they hired 10,000 they called in 10,000 military reservists right away to go and find all the people that could be found that would test positive for COVID, and they would extract them from their families, no matter how old they were, and isolate them. And there's a huge mortality peak in Peru as a result of that, of that practice. So, so there was aggression. It caused psychological stress and social isolation. And scientifically, that is known to depress the immune system dramatically. This is very well established. It's a whole area of science to study this, this relationship with stress. And so therefore you have that reduction in the immune system. And so you are more vulnerable to every kind of infection. And when you have in a large population uh, depressed immunity, one of the organs that's most susceptible to immediately being infected is the lungs because you already have um, an entire ecosystem of bacteria and everything in your own mouth and in your respiratory tract 
and many of those can become quite dangerous to your lungs. So you get you get uh, uh, bacterial pneumonia. And my time's up, and I didn't even get to the vaccines or Romania. So um, I'll just show you the Romania data, okay? Um, so th again, this is years of work, more than 30 scientific reports about science related to COVID that you can find on my various websites, on our websites, and the one I gave. And so if we look at this, this is how we prove that the vaccines were actually causing the death, is that every time you rolled out a dose, you got immediately following an excess mortality. So this is the case of Israel. So doses one and two, then, then the first booster, the second booster, and so on. And you can do it by age group like we're doing it here. You start with the most elderly, and you go down by age. And what you find is that by age, the toxicity of the vaccine, because we come to understand that the vaccine is a toxic substance that each person is going to react to differently, just like in toxicology, that if you give more doses, it's more dangerous because there's damage from the first doses. All the principles of toxicology are being followed here in addition to the high age dependence. So what we found is that there is an exponential increase in the toxicity of the vaccine per dose, and the doubling time by age is four or five years of age. So your risk of dying per injection doubles every four or five years in age. And so in, 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 in Israel, for example, if you're 80 plus years old, you're getting into uh, uh, almost a 1% death chance when you get in, in infected. And it's higher in other countries. So we looked at Peru. You can see the massive peak there in Peru due to the military coming in. Here, this is the uh, 90 plus age group. You can see the doses being rolled out. The one in color is the fourth dose, the peaks that are associated with it. And then we follow it as a function of age all the way down. We've got a lot of good data. And then we do a graph of what happened in Peru. And we can do the same thing for Chile. And we see that dose four in both of those countries gave that exponential rise, always the same doubling time, four or five years. And you're getting into um, one injection, one death per 20 injections here in the 90-plus-year-olds. So it was the elderly people that were mostly killed by the vaccines in terms of all-cause mortality. Of course, the young suffered death and all kinds of horrible side effects and so on. But in terms of mortality, the big groups that were dying that were contributing to the excess mortality is the elderly. And so that's the conclusions about vaccines. So we're able to, from this work, we're able to calculate how many people would have died globally given that we've studied so many countries now, and we find that 17 million people were killed by the vaccines on the planet. That's our number. And I'm going to ignore that buzzer because I want to show you Romania. This is the data for Romania by age group. This is the correlation between the vaccine rollouts in dark blue and these huge peaks in excess mortality in Romania. There's no initial peak that, like you see in the Western countries, there's that one with the question mark that we have hypotheses about and something very horrible happened in Romania to, to explain that. We have ideas about it. And then you have the vaccine deaths and the last one is the booster. And so in Romania, we did a preliminary analysis of that booster and it is killing. You get one death per five or 10 injections in the 80 plus year olds in Romania from the boosters. That's our conclusion preliminary conclusion on the Romanian data, and that's my conclusion with the talk.
and um, that's it. That's amazing. In Romania, around the 80-year-olds, it's 10 to 20% death rate. It's one death in 5 to 10 injections. That breaks down to 10 to 20%. Between 10 and 20% of the people that take the jabs die from it. That's outrageous. Absolutely unbelievable. That's genocide is what it is. My goodness. And we also have, um, let me see if I can find it here, uh, an interview. Tucker Carlson is interviewing um, Brett, Brett Wein, uh, Weinstein, and they're discussing the same information. Uh, not the same information, but uh, about the same stuff. It was the, the jabs killing people. Three years ago, I might have laughed at. I'm not laughing at all. You're also choosing, as you know, a 50-year-old man, to say this stuff out loud and to pursue the truth as you find it and then to talk about it. Why did you decide to do that? I literally cannot understand how I would sleep at night, how I would look at myself in the mirror if I didn't say what needed to be said. I call the force that we're up against Goliath. Goliath made a terrible mistake and made it most egregiously during COVID, which is it took all of the competent people, all of the courageous people, and it shoved them out of the institutions where they were hanging on. And it created, in so doing, the dream team. It created every player you could possibly want on your team to fight some historic battle against a terrible evil. Amazingly, it was four years next month that the first stories appeared in the American news media about a virus spreading through a city in central China, Wuhan. The virus didn't have a name. Over time, it was named COVID, and it changed world history. It wasn't that long ago, but we don't talk about it very much anymore in the way that you don't talk about traumatic things that happen to you. But that doesn't mean it's over, and it doesn't mean that huge decisions aren't being made right now that will affect your life and the lives of your children. Those decisions are being made. The story is not over. And so we thought it would be worth taking just a moment to explain what that looks like. And there's no better person to do that than Brett Weinstein. He's an evolutionary biologist. He taught at the college level for many years. He's got a fascinating bio, which you should look up because it's an amazing story. He's now the host with his wife of the Dark Horse podcast, and the author of a best-selling and very excellent book uh, that came out not long ago. He joins us now. Brett, great to see you. It is great to see you. So instead of peppering you with all kinds of pointed questions, I'm, I, I want to guide you and sit back mostly as you tell the story of COVID in condensed form. What are the outlines of what we know now and where are we going? What's the next chapter in the story? Well, first, let me just respond to something you said up front. Nobody wants to be thinking about COVID anymore. Right. It was a traumatic and exhausting experience. I don't want to be thinking about COVID anymore either. But what I find is that every time I look away and move on to other topics, things move just out of our sideline. And these things couldn't possibly be more important. So I'm going to try to explain where we are and how we got here and what the implications are in the present that people are largely not noticing. Perfect. All right. So I thought maybe it would be worth starting with just some parts of the education that we all got uh, during COVID. 
I know that I learned a tremendous amount about not only uh, viruses and pandemics and public health, but also about pharma, which is something, frankly, I thought I knew a lot about. I had uh, run into it earlier in my academic career. So I thought I was something of an expert, but I got uh, schooled over the course of COVID. What I've come to understand is something I call the game of pharma. If you think about what pharma is, we, we tend to imagine that it is an industry that is uh, hell-bent on finding drugs that will make us healthier. Yes. That's not what it is. In fact, pharma is healthy when people are sick. And many people have noticed this, that of course it depends on ill health, so it has a perverse incentive. But what I think most of us did not realize is how elaborate its bag of tricks is and what the nature of that bag of tricks is. And to, uh, to describe it, I would say um, pharma is a, an intellectual property racket, or at least that's what it has become, that essentially pharma owns various things. It owns molecules, compounds, it owns technologies. And what it's looking for is um, a disease to which these things plausibly apply. And its profits go up to the extent that the disease is widespread, to the extent that the disease is serious, to the extent that competing drugs are unsafe or ineffective, to the extent that the government will mandate a drug, to the extent that the medical establishment will declare it the standard of care. All of these things... <laughs> You've just described pandemic response. Well, that I did. And that's where I learned all of these tricks. Um, was that basically every day of the year, pharma is engaged in um, portraying the properties that it owns as more useful than they are, safer than they are, and persuading the medical establishment, the journals, the societies, the hospitals, the government, um, to direct people towards drugs they wouldn't otherwise be taking. So that's um, what the the racket is. And, and it, it is necessary to understand that because you need to realize that before COVID ever happened, um, pharma was expert at figuring out how to portray a disease as more widespread and more serious than it was. It was excellent at uh, portraying a compound as more efficacious than it is, safer than it is. And so when COVID happened, all of this occurred at a different scale. COVID was bigger than anything that had ever happened before, but none of it was new to pharma and all of it was new to us in the public trying to understand what we were supposed to do yes. about this uh, ostensibly very serious disease. So I'm now going to put a hypothesis on the table about why things unfolded the way they did. Um, and it involves that game of pharma. What was pharma thinking? Why was it so obsessed with making sure that we all took uh, the so-called vaccines that were on offer? Why was it so obsessed with making sure that we didn't take the alternative repurposed drugs that so many doctors claimed were highly effective? As treatments. Right. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, yes. these things were demonized and we were uh, told not to take them and we were mocked if we distrusted that advice. So the question is, what was all that? Why would that have happened? And again, this is, this is not certain, but what I've pieced together is that pharma owned 
what was potentially the um, the biggest pharmacological cash cow conceivable. It owned a beautiful technology, and I mean that sincerely, something truly brilliant um, that would potentially not only allow a bright future from the perspective of uh, creating new treatments and new, I hesitate to use the word vaccine because it doesn't really apply, but new vaccine-like technologies, but that it, it could do this indefinitely into the future and it could allow you to reformulate every vaccine currently on the market. And what's more, the property in question would allow this whole process to be streamlined at an incredible level because effectively all you needed was a sequence, a genetic sequence from a pathogen, and you could literally type it into a machine and produce a vaccine that was already in use, but for the swapping out of the antigen in question. So it was like Legos. Yeah, it's exactly like Legos. And presumably, um, with some justification, to the extent that this technology was safe, pharma would be able to argue, well, we don't really need to go through thorough safety testing of the entire platform each time we deploy it. All we need to do is figure out if the antigen that we've loaded in this time is in some way uh, more dangerous than the last one. The problem, so that the technology in question is the mRNA transfection platform, which was wrongly in this case called a vaccine. And it is ingenious. It solves a really important problem from gene therapy, which is oftentimes you want to get the body to do something. Let's say that you are missing a functional copy of a gene that produces some product like insulin that you need. Well, you could take insulin or it would be great if we could convince your body to produce the product itself like a healthy person does. Very hard to do that, though, because the body is composed in adult humans, 30 trillion cells or so. So how do you get cells to take up the message and produce enough of the product to matter? Well, the mRNA technology allows you to um, induce cells to take up an mRNA message, which they will then automatically transcribe. And um, it does this by encapsulating these messages in lipid nanoparticle. Lipid just means fat. And you may remember from basic chemistry, like attracts like, like dissolves like. And so these fats get taken up by cells um, uh, very regularly for simple chemical reasons. And then the message gets transcribed and voila, you've gotten cells to produce something that they didn't know how to produce in the first place. Useful for uh, vaccine-like technology, useful for curing deficiencies. The problem, however, is that this amazing technology, which it's very hard to estimate how much money pharma might have made from it. I think hundreds of billions of dollars is absolutely certain. Trillions of dollars is not off the table, given that this would allow patentable drugs to be produced indefinitely into the future. Um, but the technology itself has a terrible safety flaw that, in my opinion, never would have gotten through even the most cursory safety tests. Um, and that flaw is that there's no targeting of the lipid nanoparticles. The lipid okay. nanoparticles will be taken up by any cell they encounter. And while that's not perfectly random, it will be haphazard around the body. Now, if they were limited, if they simply stayed in the injection site, as we were told, 
when the uh, vaccine rollout began, that the, the vaccines, the so-called vaccines, stay in the injection site, well, then the cells that took up these messages would be in your deltoid, and what happens next wouldn't be terribly serious. The problem is we learned very quickly and should have predicted from the get-go that they weren't going to stay in the deltoid. All of anything you inject in that space is going to leak out and it's going to circulate around the body. And here's the problem. Um, forgive me, this is a little bit technical, I know that, but um, it involves understanding how immunity naturally develops. So when you become sick, let's say with a virus, some uh, particle has gotten into a cell of yours and it has hijacked it and it has started it has tricked that cell into producing copies of itself, more viruses, which affect or infect adjacent cells. And if the virus is an effective one, they will also figure out how to jump out of you, like when you cough, and get inhaled by the next person and infect their cells. The body's response to seeing a cell of yours, which it recognizes as yours, that is producing an antigen, that is to say a protein that it doesn't recognize, is to assume that that cell is virally infected yes. and to destroy it. That is the only correct thing for the body to do when it encounters a cell of yours making foreign protein. Now, this transfection technology, the mRNA vaccine technology, as they called it, does exactly this. It tricks your cells into producing foreign antigens, which the immune system cannot help but recognize as an indicator of infection, and it destroys those cells. If those cells are in the muscle in your arm, not a huge deal. It's not good for you. You get a sore arm. You get a sore arm, presumably we might be able to measure a decrease in your strength, but it's not going to shorten your life. However, if these transfection agents circulate around the body, as we know they do, and get taken up haphazardly, then whatever tissue starts producing these foreign proteins is going to be attacked by your immune system. So you definitely wouldn't want any of this getting near a person's heart or brain. Um, definitely not. And um, very bad if it happens in your brain. It's particularly critical if it happens in your heart because your heart, for reasons we can go into if you want, has an incredibly low capacity for repair. In fact, your heart doesn't really repair. What it does, you get a wound, if you lose cells from your heart, uh, your heart then scars over, and that will affect your heart rhythm, your capacity to transport oxygen and CO2 around the body. It will um, potentially shorten your life, and it will also create a vulnerability that you won't know that you have. Until you're like playing soccer or something. <laughs> exactly. So if you imagine somebody has received one of these transfection shots, and um, especially in the um, unfortunate case where it has been injected intravenously, which isn't supposed to happen. But the instructions on this shot were not to aspirate the needle. A proper injection should involve pulling back on the plunger in the syringe in order to see if there's blood. If there's blood, that indicates that you've landed in uh, a circulatory vessel and that you should back the needle off or plunge it farther so that you're not injecting it directly into a vein. But in the case of these shots, amazing as this sounds, the advice was don't do that because it requires the needle to be in the person's arm longer, might create extra pain, and they didn't want to create vaccine hesitancy was their excuse. So anyway, you might get a big bolus of uh, this material 
and it might flow right through your heart and get taken up by a bunch of cells. And just for perspective, do we have any guess as to how many of these shots were given out globally? Uh, it's definitely in the billions. Um, billions? Yeah, it's in the With billions. the mRNA technology? Yes, which is an amazing fact. I mean, the in addition to the technology itself being remarkable, the rate at which this was scaled up is positively incredible. Now, it had terrible downsides. I don't know if we'll have time to get to the downsides of the way they scaled up their production on these. Um, but if we can separate the marvel of what they did, yes, there's an awful lot of stuff here that's beyond wizardry. It's, it's just incredible what they what they accomplished. Could so, I, I'm sorry, to, I don't want to take you off track, but you were describing what would happen if it went to various organs that would damage them. What, could it cause cancers too? We can get back to that. We clearly are seeing an uptick in cancers and an uptick in cancers that are unusual, especially in their speed. Um, so uh, maybe we, maybe if we have time, we can come back to the reasons that that might be occurring. There's a lot of discussion amongst the medical dissidents about why that pattern exists and what it implies. But yes, um, clearly cancers are one of the failure modes of the body and this highly novel technology clearly had that as a risk, even if we didn't know what mechanism it would happen by. Um, but yes, if you let's say you're a soccer player and you've been injected with uh, this stuff and a bolus of it has hit your heart and caused a bunch of your cells to be destroyed by your own immune system, by uh, cytotoxic T cells and natural killer cells. Well, now you've got a wound. If you manage to survive to have it scar over, then that wound will be less of a vulnerability than it would otherwise be. But if in the period after you've been damaged, before your heart has fully scarred, you were to push yourself to some new athletic limit, now let's say you're in the middle of a particularly intense game, right? that would be exactly the time when a weakness in a, a vessel wall might cause a, a critical failure and you, you, know, you could die on the field. So this is a very plausible mechanism to explain the pattern of uh, sudden deaths that we have seen oftentimes in people who are unusually healthy and athletic. Yes. Um, so to go back to the, the original story, pharma had a potentially uh, tremendously lucrative property that it couldn't bring to market because a safety test would have revealed this unsolvable problem at its heart. And so what I'm wondering, my hypothesis is that it recognized that the thing that would bypass that obstacle was an emergency that caused the public to demand uh, a remedy to allow them to go back to work and to living their lives that would cause the government to streamline the safety testing process so that it wouldn't spot these things. And indeed, one of the things that we see in addition to uh, a lot more harm in those safety tests than we were initially allowed to understand. Um, but also the safety testing was radically truncated so that long-term harms were impossible to detect. So the hypothesis in question is pharma used an emergency to bypass an obstacle to bring an incredibly lucrative technology um, to normalize it in the public and the regulatory apparatus to sneak it by the things that would ordinarily prevent a dangerous technology like this one from being widely deployed. 
So I think that sounds entirely plausible. Um, in fact, likely. In fact, very likely. But the downside for pharma, and of course for the rest of us, is that if you roll out a harmful product evading the conventional safety screens, you're going to hurt a lot of people. And then what? So just first part of the question, what do you think we're going to see in terms of a, a death toll and injury toll from this vaccine, so-called? Um, a lot has gone into preventing us from answering that question, and some very dedicated people have done uh, some very high-quality work, and uh, the numbers are staggering. Now, I'm hesitant to say what I think the toll might be because this is not my area of expertise, and um, I would leave it to others. I would say John Campbell would be an excellent source to look at. There's some new material out of New Zealand, which is jaw-dropping. I haven't had time to look at it in depth, so I'm a little um, concerned about putting my weight on the ice. But um, let's say here's here's what we here's what we know. Um, Joseph Freeman and his colleagues, including Peter Doshi, did a uh, an evaluation of Pfizer's own safety data from its safety trials. Now, these trials were absurdly short. In fact, Pfizer only allowed one month before it vaccinated its controls and made it impossible to detect uh, further harms. And what they found was a one in 800 rate of serious adverse event. This is not minor stuff. This is serious harm to health. One in 800 per shot. That's not per person. That's per shot. One in 800 rate, which in one month, that suggests um, a very uh, a very high mortality risk. And in fact, we saw mortality in the, in the safety trials. Um, what happens over the long term, we've certainly seen such a range of pathologies that have crippling effects on people's health that um, I, I shudder to think how many people have actually so I'm not a math genius, but one in 800 shots times billions is, you know, a lot of people. Yep. Um, there was uh, a press. I was recently at a conference uh, in Romania on the COVID crisis. And so there was a lot of work trying to unpack what we actually understand. And I saw a credible estimate of something like 17 million deaths uh, globally from this technology. So 17 million deaths from the COVID vax? Well, when, you know, when you scale up to billions, uh, it's not hard to reach a number like that with a technology this dangerous. Now to your deeper question, I think let's steel man. So just for perspective, I mean, that's like the death toll of a global war. Yes, absolutely. It, it is, this is a, a, a great tragedy of history. So that proportion. Um, and amazingly, there is no way in which it's over. I mean, we are still apparently recommending these things for healthy children. Never stood any chance of getting any benefit from them. Every chance of suffering harms that are uh, not only serious, but tragic on the basis that children have long lives ahead of them. If you ruin a, a child's immune system, uh, in youth, they have to spend the rest of their presumably shortened life in that state. So never made any sense that we were giving this to kids in the first place. The fact that we're still doing it when 
the emergency to the extent there even was one is clearly over. And, um, when there's never been any proper justification of administering it to healthy kids, it just, you know, healthy kids don't die of COVID. Um, and the shot doesn't prevent you from catching or transmitting it. So there wasn't, there was just literally no justification you could come up with. But I think a lot of us, um, maybe call us normies, have a hard time imagining the, um, the breathtaking evil that it would take to allow such a tragedy to unfold or to uh, cause it to unfold for profit. I still struggle to imagine. I do too. Um, but think about, think about it this way. Pharma on a normal day is composed of people who have to become, even if they were doing their job exactly right, they have to be comfortable with causing a certain amount of death. Right. If you give a drug to people, if the net effect is positive, but it's going to kill some people who would have lived if they never got it, somehow you have to sleep at night having put that drug in, into the world. And, you know, we want, if we had a healthy pharma industry, we would want them to produce the drugs that had a net benefit. And that benefit includes some serious harms. Um, so, once you have stepped on that slippery slope, though, once you have become comfortable with causing deaths, then I believe it becomes very easy to rationalize um, that the greater good is being served by X, Y, or Z. And then there's some point at which you're causing enough harm and you're, you know, when pharma uh, takes an old out-of-patent drug and um, supersedes it with a new highly profitable drug, they've done something that's negative. We should almost always prefer the older drug unless the evidence is extremely convincing. The new drug is just worlds better because an old drug, we know something about its interactions with other things. We know something yes. about its safety profile. New is not better when it comes to molecules that you're going to be taking into your, your biology. <laughs> um, Fair. But pharma has to be in the business of getting you to take the new and having you distrust the old. And so anyway... I think I think there's a way in which the rationalization has no limit, and they've gotten to the point that they are willing to cause a huge amount of death, apparently. Um, and even at the point that it's been revealed in public, uh, they don't stop, which is another amazing fact. It, you would imagine that they would have been embarrassed into stopping this vaccination program at this point. So the problem, though, I would say for, for pharma and for the politicians who... Uh, support and promote them in the media who do the same is that um, there are people like you who are not crackpots, who are scientists and physicians, longtime researchers with fully credentialed work histories, not too many, but a sizable number who will not let go, who are completely dogged in the pursuit of more data about this. Um, so like, what do they do with you and people like you? Well, I think the astonishing thing is that a, as you point out, small group of dissidents upended their narrative. Uptake rates on the new boosters are in the low single digits. So a large low single digit. Yes. So nobody's taking it. Nobody's taking them. Now, I'm troubled by the fact that at the same time, we don't see uh, a massive majority acknowledging that the vaccination campaign was a mistake in the first place. They got it and they don't want to think about it. And I get it. I get it. Um, I wouldn't want to think about it either. But 
the problem is it's a moral obligation. I mean, we're still injecting these things into kids for God's sake. So, um, it is important to stand up and say, I was had, and I think all of us were, I, I believed that this vaccine was likely effective when it first came out. And the thing that triggered Heather and me to question it was the fact that we were also told that it was safe, which couldn't possibly be true. Might've been harmless, but they couldn't say safe because nobody on earth knew what the long-term impacts would be. And when you say safe, you're not, uh, if I say, I drove home drunk, um, but I made it without harm. So it was safe. You know that I have said something foolish. Yes. And in this case, even if the thing had turned out to be harmless, nobody could know that it was, so it wasn't safe. And for them to assure us that it was, was a lie from the get-go. That's what caused Heather and me to start looking into it. And the deeper we dug, the crazier the story got. Not safe and ineffective. In fact, harmful and uh, shockingly ineffective at everything that you might want it to be effective at. Um, so the story is a an odd one. The fact that that small number of dissidents was able to upend the narrative, was able to bring people's awareness to the massive levels of harm and the ineffectiveness of the shots is in some ways um, the most surprising element of this story. And I think it truly surprised um, pharma and its partners in social media, in government, in non-governmental organizations. I think they thought that they owned enough of the media that they could sell us any narrative that they wished. And I think surprising as it is, they didn't really understand that podcasts could possibly be a countervailing force of significance. If you own NBC News, it's enough. You would say, right? You know, it's a, it's a, it's failing to update from the buying by the barrel uh, totally aphorism. Right. Um, so what happened was it turned out that a number of us were willing to make mistakes and correct them in real time to talk about this in plain English with the public, um, to do so, you know, in Joe Rogan's man cave. And the fact is people listened because of course this was on everybody's mind and what they were supposed to do to protect, you know, they'd been terrified and they, what to do to protect your family's health was a question that everybody wanted to know the answer to. So our ability to reach millions of people surprised those who thought they were just going to shove this narrative down our throats. And this gets me to the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, and its pandemic preparedness uh, plan modifications. What I believe is going on is the World Health Organization is now revising the structures that allowed the dissidents to upend the narrative, and they are looking for a rematch, I think. Um, what they want are the measures that would have allowed them to silence the podcasters, to mandate uh, various things internationally in a way that would um, you know, prevent the emergence of a control group that would allow us to see harms clearly. Um, so that's the reason that I think people, as much as they want to move on from thinking about COVID, maybe stop thinking about COVID, but do start thinking about what has taken place with respect to medicine, with respect to public health, with respect to pharma, and ask yourself the question, given what you now know, would you want to relive a pandemic like the COVID pandemic without 
the tools that allowed you to ultimately, in the end, see clearly that it didn't make sense to take another one of these shots or to have your kids take them, right? We want those tools. In fact, we need them. And um, something is quietly moving just out of sight in order that we will not have access to them the next uh, time we face a serious emergency. So you're saying that an international health organization could just end the First Amendment in the United States? Yes. And in fact, um, as much as this sounds, I know that it sounds preposterous, but it does not sound preposterous. (laughs) The ability to do it is currently under discussion at the international level. And it's almost impossible to exaggerate how troubling what is being discussed is. In fact, I think it is fair to say that we are in the middle of a coup, that we are actually facing the elimination of our national and our personal sovereignty, and that that is the purpose of what is being constructed, that it has been um, written in such a way that you are, your eyes are supposed to glaze over That's right. as you attempt to sort out what is, it, uh, what is under discussion. And if you do that, then come May of this year, your nation is almost certain to sign on to an agreement that in some utterly vaguely described future circumstance, a public health emergency, which the Director General of the World Health Organization has total liberty to define in any way that he sees fit. In other words, nothing prevents um, climate change from being declared a public health emergency that would trigger the provisions of these modifications. And in the case that some emergency or some uh, pretense of an emergency shows up, the provisions that would kick in are um, beyond jaw-dropping. So before you get into it, and I I just want to thank you, by the way, for taking the time to go through this proposal, because you're absolutely right. It's, It's impenetrable. It's designed to be to cloak what they're saying rather than eliminate it. Um, What's it called? (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, actually, I was looking um, this morning to find out what the current name is, and the names have actually been shifted slightly. Clearly a feature. Oh, it's a shape-shifting agreement. It is. So what I would do in order, uh, and and it's unclear to me how much that's just simply designed to confuse somebody who tries to sort it out and how much that's designed to, for example, game the search engine technology that might allow you to track the changes because to the extent that the name has shifted. Um, So I call it the um, World Health Organization Pandemic Preparedness Plan, right? And what is under discussion uh, are some modifications to the global public health regulations and modifications to an existing treaty. But all of this makes it sound minor and procedural. What has been proposed are, uh, and again, the number of things included here is incredible. It's hard even for those of us who have been focused on this to track all of the important things under discussion and to deduce the meaning of some of the more subtle provisions. But um, they, uh, the World Health Organization and its signatory nations will be allowed to define a public health emergency uh, 
on any basis that having declared one, they will be entitled to mandate remedies. The remedies that are named include um, vaccines. Uh, gene therapy technology is literally named in uh, the set of things that the World Health Organization is going to reserve the right to mandate, um, that it will be in a position to um, require these things of citizens, that it will be in a position to uh, dictate our ability to travel, in other words, passports that would be predicated on one having accepted uh, these technologies are um, clearly being described. It would have the ability to forbid the use of other medications. So this looks like they're preparing for a rerun where they can just simply take ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine uh, off the table. Um, they also have reserved the ability to dictate how these uh, measures are discussed that censorship is described here as well, the right to dictate that's, that, of course, misinformation is how they're going to describe it. Well, in fact, I want to ask you to pause and play a, a soundbite from Tedros um, in which he alludes to this, and I want to get your assessment of it. Here it is. We continue to see misinformation on social media and in mainstream media about the pandemic accord that countries are now negotiating. The claim that the accord will cede power to WHO is quite simply false. It's fake news. Countries will decide what the accord says and countries alone. And countries will implement the accord in line with their own national laws. No country will cede any sovereignty to WHO. If any politician, business person, or anyone at all is confused about what the pandemic accord is and isn't, we would be more than happy to discuss it and explain it. So he's going to be more than happy to discuss and explain the misinformation that you're <laughs> yeah, that is, <laughs> now spreading. That is comforting. Um, well, on the one hand, I must say I had not seen that. And um, it is tremendously good news, actually. What it means is that once again, we have managed to raise awareness of something in time that there is uh, conceivably a better outcome still available to us. So They're spooked enough to bother to lie about there's, it. There's, you couldn't have said it uh, more accurately, yes. Th th those were clearly lies. And of course, uh, his saying that into a camera is supposed to convince you, you know, nobody could possibly lie so directly. So there must be some truth in what he's saying, which is, of course, nonsense and Anybody who goes back through uh, Matt Orfala's compendium of various things that people have said into cameras over the course of COVID that they then swear they didn't say, you know, months later, um, knows that these folks are very comfortable at saying totally false things into a camera. It doesn't cause them to, to think twice or sweat or anything. Um, but it's great that we have managed to raise enough awareness that Tedros is actually addressing uh, our spreading of what it actually is, is malinformation. Um, you're aware of this, uh, this extension? No. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. So I was, I was, I'm so old that I was still stuck in the truth or falsehood binary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, what mattered was whether it was true or not? No, no, no the uh, malinformation is actually exactly what you need to know about to see, um, how antiquated that notion is because, um, 
this is actually the Department of Homeland Security actually issued a memo um, in which it defined three kinds of, I kid you not, terrorism, mis, dis, and malinformation. Misinformation are errors. Uh, disinformation are intentional errors, lies, and malinformation are things that are based in truth but cause you to distrust authority. <laughs> <laughs> so malinformation is what you commit when you catch them lying. Yes, um, exactly. Um, yeah, it is, it is discussing the lies of your, your government uh, is malinformation and therefore a kind of terrorism, which I should point out, as funny as that is and as obviously Orwellian as that is, it's also terrifying because if you have tracked the history of the spreading tyranny from the beginning of the war on terror, you know that terrorism is not a normal English word the way it once was. Terrorism is now a legal designation that causes all of your rights to evaporate. So at the point that the Department of Homeland Security says that you are guilty of a kind of terrorism for saying true things that cause you to distrust your government, they are also telling you something about what rights they have to silence you. They are not normal rights. So um, these things are all uh, terrifying, and I do think as much as my jaws open, <laughs> the, the COVID pandemic caused us to become aware of a lot of structures that had been built around us. Something that um, former NSA officer William Binney once described as the turnkey totalitarian state. The totalitarian state is erected around you, but it's not activated. And then once it's built, the key gets turned. And so we are now seeing, I believe, something that even outstrips William Binney's description because it's the turnkey totalitarian planet, right? The World Health Organization is above the level of nations and it is going to be in a position, if uh, these provisions pass, to dictate to nations how they are to treat their own citizens, to override their constitutions, despite what Tedros has just told you. Um, so that is um, frightening. It's not inherently about health. What I think has happened is the fact of a possible pandemic causes a loophole in the mind. It's not a loophole in our governance documents. Our constitution doesn't describe you know, exemptions from your rights during time of a pandemic emergency. Your rights simply are what they are, and they're not supposed to go anywhere um, just because there's a disease spreading. Um, but nonetheless, um, people's willingness to accept the erosion of their rights because of a public health emergency um, has allowed this tyranny to to use it as a Trojan horse. Yes, and I think that's also um, it's something people need to become aware of that uh, there are a number of features of our environment that are. Um, Basically, they are blind spots that we can't see past. Vaccine was one. And I know I was an, an enthusiast about vaccines. I still believe deeply in the elegance of vaccines as they should exist. But I'm now very alarmed at how they are produced. And I'm even more alarmed at what has been called a vaccine that doesn't meet the definition. Right? That Because many of us believe that vaccines uh, were an extremely elegant, low harm, high uh, efficacy method of preventing disease, when they called this mRNA tech technology a vaccine, many of us um, gave it more credibility than we should have. If they had called it uh, a, a 
a gene transfection technology, we would have thought, wait, what? You know, that, that's, that sounds highly novel and it sounds dangerous. And how much do we know about the long-term implications? But because they called it a vaccine, people were much readily, much more willing to, to accept it. Public health functions the same way. Um, if you think about it, public health, step back a second, your relationship with your doctor, your personal health, uh, ought to be very important to you. But there are ways in which things that happen at a population level affect your personal health and your doctor's not in a position to do anything about it. Right. So somebody dumping pollution into a stream from which you're pulling fish, you know, you might detect the harm at the population level. You might need a regulation at a population level in order to protect you. Your doctor's not in a position to right. you a pill That's to correct right. it. So the idea that public health is potentially a place to improve all of our well-being is real. But once you decide that there's something above doctors relative to your health, then that can be an excuse for all manner of tyranny. Public health has been um, adopted. It's like, uh, it's like the sheep's clothing that has allowed the wolf to go after our rights because in theory it's trying to protect us from harms that we would like to be protected. And it generates such fear it's at such a huge scale that it, it weakens people's moral immune systems. Absolutely. They will accept things they would never accept otherwise. Absolutely. And uh, as you know, and as, as I know, when we raised questions about what was being, uh, being delivered to us under the guise of public health, we were demonized as if we had a moral defect. It wasn't even a cognitive defect where we were failing to understand the wisdom of these vaccines. It was a moral defect where we were failing to protect others who were vulnerable by questioning these things. Um, so uh, the idea that health is at stake in some vague, larger sense that requires us to, to override the natural relationship between doctors and patients is itself a coup against medicine by something else. And we need to become aware of that. So can I, just, to, just to check kind of like the souls of the people who are running all of this, the public health establishment, international public health establishment, now that... You know, some researchers believe up to 17 million people could have been killed by these mRNA shots. Has any international public health official said, well, hold on a second, we need to get to the bottom of that? Has that provoked any response from the people in charge of our public health? Well, I'm trying to think globally whether they're good examples. There's certainly some folks who have stood up in the European Parliament. Um, but I mean, in World Health Organization, CDC... No, I don't think so. I don't think we ha we have not seen an acknowledgement of the harm and error. Um, they don't have internet access. They don't know. Like, what is that? Well, that's the incredible thing. Is I still see claims um, that just simply, if they initially had believed them, then they are long ago falsified. But they're still being advanced for whoever hasn't noticed. You know, the idea that it's a good idea to vaccinate your kids with mRNA shots, being one of them. Right to the extent that there was a panic that caused us to give these uh, shots to people who couldn't possibly benefit from them, you would expect us to have backed that off extremely rapidly as it became impossible uh, to defend those shots. And yet, because there's still presumably some market for it, um, we are we are still doing it. So we are living some crazy story in which things that are perfectly obvious are um, still somehow have not lodged themselves in the official public record. And, you know, 
I think that has a lot to do with, frankly, the death of journalism. Yes. A lot of us are doing jobs that we didn't train for. Heather and I are doing some journalistic job that we certainly didn't train for. We trained to think about biology and, you know, we do that in front of a camera. And so that functions as a kind of stand in for journalism. But the handful of journalists who still exist, um, I think without exception, are not scientifically trained. Right. You know, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, you, we don't have very many people doing investigative journalism and the ones who, uh, who are doing it, they don't have the skill set that would make this a natural topic to investigate. So we have to boot up some kind of new institution that will allow us to do this job well. And presumably that will involve taking the few investigative journalists uh, who remember how to do that job and the few scientists and doctors who are willing to still do their job and, you know, put us together, right? Podcast isn't the right place to do it. If that's all we got, that's all we got. But um, there's got to be a better, a better method. So if this is ratified or signed on to by the United States in May, six months from now, um, that sounds like that's it. We don't know. Um, I will say I have very little hope that the U.S. will derail this. I have the sense that whatever has captured our government um, is driving this as well. And so, in, in effect, uh, the U.S. wants this change. It will, in fact, you know, in the same way that the Five Eyes nations agree to mutually violate the rights of each other's citizens because that was not prevented in any of our constitutions. I think the U.S. wants something to force it to violate our constitutional protections, and the World Health Organization is going to be that entity. That said, uh, I have recently been to the Czech Republic, and I've been to Romania, and I've uh, heard from other parts of the former Eastern Bloc that there is resistance, that people who have faced tyranny in living memory um, are much less ready to accept these changes and that they are actually beginning to, to mount a response. I worry that it will be too thin and easily defeated, especially if they do not understand that actually the world is depending on them, that the traditionally, the countries we traditionally think of as part of the West are compromised and that these countries which have more recently joined or rejoined the West are the best hope we've got, that they are in a position to derail um, this set of provisions and that we are depending on them to do it. So I, I just want to end for a few moments on, your, on the overview here. So you have all these remarkable things converging in a single 12-month period. You have war, pestilence, political unrest, <clears throat> apparently unsolvable political unrest. What do you think we're looking at in the West? Like, what is this moment and how does it end? Well, um, so I have long been interested in questions of good governance and the West. And um, I'm sad to report that I think the West has actually collapsed. And what we are left with is now um, a nebulous echo 
the values of the West still function, but they function um, in a vague way, and we have seen that they can evaporate quickly under the right circumstances. Um, I suspect, and I really don't know, I don't think anybody knows, um, but I suspect that some powerful set of forces has decided that um, consent of the governed is too dangerous to tolerate and that it has begun to unhook it. And we do not know how this works. We can see some of the partners who are involved in this, but I don't think we know ultimately who's driving it or where they're going. I think many of the notions that we picked up about uh, nations and who our friends are and who our enemies are, are uh, they are now more misleading than they are informative. In other words, uh, I don't think the U.S. has an enemy called China. I think there are elements within the U.S. that are partnered within uh, with elements within the Chinese Communist Party for practical reasons, and so our you know the the notion that these uh, two parties are competing with each other just distracts us from what's actually taking place. But let's just put it this way. We have a large global population. Most people have no useful role through no fault of their own. They have not been given a, uh, an opportunity in life to find a useful way to contribute. And I wonder if um, the rent-seeking elites that have hoarded so much power uh, are not unhooking our rights because effectively they're afraid of some um, global French Revolution moment as people realize that they've been betrayed and uh, left without good options. Is that what we're seeing? It certainly feels like we're facing um, an end game where important uh, properties that would once have been preserved by all parties because they might need them one day are now being dispensed with and we're being, um, you know, we're watching our governmental structures and every one of our institutions captured, hollowed out, turned into a, a paradoxical inversion of what it was designed to do. It's not an accident. Whether they, you know, the, the thing that worries me most actually is that whatever is driving this is not composed of diabolical geniuses who at least have some plan for the future, but it's being driven by people who actually do not know what kind of hell they are inviting. Yes. They're going to create a kind of chaos from which uh, humanity may well not emerge. And I get the sense that um, unless they have some remarkable plan that is not obvious, that they are just simply drunk with power and putting everyone, including themselves, in tremendous jeopardy by taking apart the structures on which we depend. How do you see, my last question, how do you see your, I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking in, in grand terms that three years ago I, I might have laughed at. I'm not laughing at all, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, but you're also choosing as, you know, a 50-ish man, year old man, to say this stuff out loud 
and to pursue the truth as you find it and then to talk about it. Like, so how do you, why did you decide to do that? And how do you think that ends? Well, you know, we are all the products of whatever developmental environment produced us. And as I've said on multiple topics where my family has found itself in very uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous circumstances um, because we speak out, I don't think I had a choice. I just, I, I literally cannot understand how I would sleep at night, how I would look at myself in the mirror if I didn't say what needed to be said. And, you know, I, um, I heard a, a very good speech by Bobby Kennedy Jr. He, though neither of us are libertarians, he was at the uh, Liberty Conference in, in Memphis. And the last thing he said in that speech um, struck me to my core. It's something I've thought often and said almost never. But there are fates far worse than death. And I think, for my part, I have, I have lived an incredible life. I have, I, there's plenty I still want to do, and I am not eager to leave this planet any earlier than I have to. I have a marvelous family. I live in a wonderful place, and I've got lots of things bucket list, but I got lots of things on my bucket list. However, humanity is depending on everybody who has a position from which to see what is taking place, to grapple with what it might mean, to describe it so that the public understands where their interests are. It is depending on us to do what needs to be done if we're to have a chance of delivering a planet to our children and our grandchildren that is worthy of them, if we're going to deliver a system that allows them to live meaningful, healthy lives, we have to speak up. And I don't know, I don't know how to get people to do that. I'm very hesitant to urge others to put themselves or their families in danger. And I know that everybody's circumstances are different. Some people are struggling just simply to feed a family and keep a roof over their heads. Those people obviously have a great deal less liberty uh, with respect to, to standing up and saying what needs to be said. But this is really, it's what we call in game theory a collective action problem. If everybody responds to their personal well-being, if everybody says that's too dangerous to stand up, um, you know, I'm not suicidal, I'm, I, I can't do it, then not enough people stand up to change the course of history. Whereas if people somehow put aside the obvious danger to their ability to earn and maybe to their lives of saying what needs to be said, then we greatly outnumber those we are pitted against. They are ferociously powerful. But I would also point out this interesting error so I call the force that we're up against Goliath, just so I kind of remember what the battle is. Goliath made a terrible mistake, and it made it most egregiously during COVID, which is it took all of the competent people, took all of the courageous people, and it shoved them 
out of the institutions where they were hanging on. And it created, in so doing, the dream team. Created every player you could possibly want on your team to fight some historic battle against a terrible evil. All of those people are now at least somewhat awake. They've now been picked on by the same enemy. And yeah, all right, we're outgunned. It has a tremendous amount of power, but but we've got all of the people who know how to think. So I hate to say it, or maybe I like to say it, but I don't think it's a slam dunk, but I like our odds. I've never met a more fluent biologist. I have to say, <laughs> Brett Weinstein, amazing conversation. Bless you. Thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Powerful stuff. I played the whole thing just because there's so much information in there. And um, while this was going on, I did a little research into the um, uh, the WHO and their treaty. And I came up with a website, um, doortofreedom.org. That's letter like door, D-O-O-R-T-O, freedom, F-R-E-E-D-O-M dot O-R-G. And there is a ton of information there. Some of the documents that you can find on that, and I put uh, put them in the chat room as well as on the Telegram channel. Um, where did it go? Eight items of major concern regarding the proposed WHO Treaty and international health regulations. And this is a two-page handout that you can, it's a PDF you can download, print out, and I did. First is biological warfare agent proliferation. The treaty and proposed amendments instruct nations that they must perform surveillance for potential pandemic pathogens, build or maintain sequencing labs, and both uh, share actual specimens with the World Health Organization where a biohub has been created for this purpose and also share the sequences online. So if they find some kind of, uh, basically, it's a recipe for a biohazard, <laughs> you have to share it. And you think that's not going to get hacked and the bad guys might get it? This demands the proliferation of biological weapons agents, which I believe is a crime based on my inter interpretation of the Security Council Resolution 1540 and the 1972 Biological Weapons Con uh, Convention. 1A, the June, uh, June 2nd, 2023 Bureau text version of the treaty also called for nations performing gain-of-function research to reduce administrative impediments to the work. So in other words, make it easier to do. In other words, restrictions on the uh, search or research should be relaxed. You know, the U.S. shut it down, which is why they moved it to China, and they want to make it easier, which would make lab leaks more likely to occur. This paragraph was removed from the October 30th, 2023 version of the treaty giving the WHO a blank check to create new rules in the future. The treaty calls for a conference of parties and a new WHO secretariat to be created in the future that will make rules for, now, for how the pandemic pre uh, prevention and response apparatus will work, which provides essentially a blank signed contract to the WHO to create whatever rules it wants. Liability-free vaccines developed at warp speed will be produced. The treaty calls for rapid vaccine development, production, and shaving time off all aspects of vaccine development, testing, and manufacture. 
This requires vaccines to be used without licenses, and the treaty calls for nations to have laws in place to issue emergency use authorization for this purpose and to manage liability issues. See the WHO's proposed treaty to will increase man-made pandemics. For more information about this, the U.S., the EU, and others have specifically called for 100-day vaccine development and additional 30 days for production of pandemic vaccines. This would allow for no meaningful human testing, (laughs) any testing at all, really. Uh, Four, human rights guarantees have been removed from the new amendments. The amendments removed human rights, dignity, and freedom of persons from the existing IHR language, which is at International Health Regulations. Following complaints, this phrase was later inserted into the treaty, but the treaty may not be accepted in 2024. Meanwhile, the amendments require only a simple majority to pass are being written in secret, and so it is likely that the most, most problematic issues will be found in the amendments. Five, social media surveillance and censorship of citizens is required. Both the amendments and the treaty call for nation states to perform surveillance of their citizens' social media and to censor and prevent the spread of information that does not conform to the WHO's public health and narratives. Yet the treaty, and that's already going on, look at Facebook and YouTube. You put in anything that doesn't, that goes against what they're saying, boom, it's taken down quickly. Yet the treaty also calls for citizens to be free to access information while they are to be protected from infodemics, <laughs> new term, which are defined as too much information. Citizens must also be stopped from spreading mis- and disinformation. The question is, who determines what mis- and disinformation is? There's the big question. Six, we may not learn what is in the amendments until after they're passed. <laughs> well, yeah, we got to pass it to see what's in it, right, Nancy? <laughs> the amendments have been negotiated entirely in secret for the past nine months, while there have been multiple conse- consecutive drafts of the pandemic treaty released to the public during that time, and while the negotiated amendments were not were to be tabled for public v- review in January 2024, <clears throat> the WHO's principal legal officer has provided a legal fig leaf to avoid the obligation of making them public four months ahead of the vote. Will the public even see the amendments before the vote then on uh, them occurs? Why is there such secrecy regarding the proposed amendments? Because people ain't going to like them. The WHO director general could become your personal physician. According to the proposed amendments, the WHO Director General would be able to commandeer and move medical supplies from one country to another, decide what treatments can be used, and restrict the use of other treatments. Oh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, nutrition, ivermectin, no, you can't use that, budesonide, nope, that's out the window, we don't approve that. You got to use our lethal stuff. Remdesivir, that's the ticket, kills everybody. Number eight, when will the WHO be able to use its newly minted powers? The amendments will come into force after the declaration of a public health emergency of international concern, or FIIC, is made. However, a declaration of potential FIIC will also trigger these powers. The powers can be extended even after the FIIC is over, as we have seen with COVID and monkeypox. 
declarations by the Director General. The treaty will be free and uh, enforced continuously, requiring no declaration or pandemic to confer new powers to the WHO. So that's basically uh, a document that you can print out and pass around to help people realize what's going on. But there are a lot of things. Another one that I really like is the, uh, it's called the WHO and American Democracy, which, you know, not a democracy, but, you know, kind of are. And it's a two-page document. And the first part's kind of a flow chart. U.S. Article, uh, U.S. Constitution, Article uh, 6, treaties shall become the supreme law of the land. And um, then uh, is WHO membership a treaty? Yes. The World Health Organization, Constitution, and International Health Regulations, IHR 2005, are listed as current treaties in force. WHO membership was approved in 1948 by a joint resolution of Congress, giving it the same weight as a two-thirds majority vote of the Senate. Vienna Convention, Article 5, 1969, instruments adopted by international organizations according to their international internal rules are treaties. So what? These agreements have been in place for over 50 years. International health regulations are being amended so that countries will be forced to obey. And there's a new draft document, the WHO-CA+, a.k.a. the Plandemic Treaty, a.k.a. the Bureau Draft. And IHR amendments remove the phrase with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons and change recommendations to legal requirements. Pandemic Treaty implements uh, the One Health approach and requires members to perform both biological and internet informational surveillance. It also requires members to censor information that counters the WHO position. So what? This won't override the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights, will it? See item one in these three Supreme Court cases. Missouri versus Holland, 1920, treaties override the Tenth Amendment, which reserves powers to the states. U.S. versus Belmont, 1937, the president alone can make inter- international compacts, which override states' rights. U.S. versus Pink, 1942, state law must yield when it is inconsistent with or impairs a treaty or an international compact or agreement. <laughs> In other words, we're screwed. Okay, but there's no enforcement mechanism. <laughs> Both documents create compliance directives and direct members to enact legislation supporting the changes. NDAA, Subtitle D, International Pandemic Preparedness, this new piece of legislation directs U.S. government agencies to comply with and adhere to any relevant frameworks that contribute to global health security. Okay, but that won't usurp the First Amendment right to, uh, to freedom of speech or the Fourth Amendment right to privacy, will it? Yes, it will. See items one and five. Read the documents yourself. <laughs> and it's, it's a pretty interesting flowchart that basically says that if we even comply with this crap, uh, we're screwed. Um, it puts them in total control. So, like I said, I've put these documents in the chat room in PDF form, and they're also on the Telegram channel. Help yourself and spread them far and wide. Um, and like I said, I encourage you to check out doortofreedom.org. Um, there's a lot of stuff on that site. There's uh, videos that you can watch, um, documents you can print out, all kinds of stuff. And apparently this is supposed to be voted on in May of this year. So basically, um, 
there's a lot of work to be done between now and then in order to keep this garbage um, from going through. You know, the, what it boils down to is if it passes, then it's just a matter of it's going to be an act of war against the people of this country. And the only thing that will stop it from being implemented is us standing up, uh, is what it boils down to. Because the governments will do it, you know, especially the schmucks that are in place right now. Uh, this is right up their alley. Um, and I can almost say that uh, between now and May, there's nothing going to stop this because the, the movement uh, with the liberals in place, they're all in favor of this kind of stuff. Total, uh, total destruction of our rights. And the thing is, is go back to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To, um, to secure these rights, governments, I'm going from memory, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Well, when we stop consenting, they no longer have any just powers. And on top of that, our rights come from God, and nobody, you know, we had those rights before the Constitution existed, and if this thing goes through, we still have those rights. They cannot take them away, and that's what uh, people don't seem to understand. Regardless, they could, you know, and people are always, oh, I got my Second Amendment rights. Well, guess what? They could repeal the Second Amendment tomorrow. You still have the right to keep and bear arms because God gave you that right. No man can take it away. And that's what we've got to stand on. We've got to be educating people to the point that this stuff, regardless of whether it goes through or not, you have your rights. But the problem is, rights. Uh, <laughs> if a right's not used, it doesn't exist. You've got to use it. And when, when the right's no longer on paper, like the Second Amendment, if you don't use it, it's gone. And that's the thing that people got to realize. No matter what they do with the paper, the rights are still there, but they're they're harder to implement when there's nothing in writing because that's just the way these criminals operate. So uh, keep that in mind. But, okay, the WHO is bringing about world coup. It is being done under the guise of pandemic preparedness. Two WHO treaties are being secretly negotiated now to advance this, a pandemic treaty and a massively amended set of international health regulations if you want to preserve your rights and freedoms, your possessions, and your doctor-patient relationship, and the sovereignty of your nation, this must be stopped. Again, it'll be a whole lot harder to do once it goes through, but we'll have to stand against it. And the thing is, if you're in the system, so to speak, if they have medical records on you, <laughs> and you and a doctor have something going on, you know, this is one of the first things you need to get rid of. You need to take responsibility for your own health, not putting it in the hands of some medical deity, some mad dog with MD after their name and a little stethoscope hanging around their neck because what they're giving you and doing for you is not designed to keep you healthy. It's designed to make them wealthy. People got to realize that. Allopathic medicine is there for one thing and one thing only, and that's putting Humpty Dumpty back together. But if Humpty Dumpty's got a cold 
Or if Humpty Dumpty has a nutritional deficiency situation, the last thing Humpty should do is go to an MD. The sooner people realize that, the better off they'll be. But uh, we're just about out of time here. My goodness. Um, Dr. Merrill Nass is the, is the person running this website, doing a lot of work on this. Why the Who's new plan should worry everyone. Uh, she got a little video here. And just for the fun of it, I'm going to play a minute or two of it and see. Let's get into it. event in Congress. And it was actually a fascinating discussion through whole series of people. Just give me a sense of, of, of what's going on with this WHO treaty and the international health regulations, which were the focus of the discussion. Yeah, so um, two years ago, in the middle of the, this pandemic, the um, WHO and certain powerful nations, particularly the United States, uh, decided that um, we needed a pandemic treaty. The world needed a pandemic treaty. And the justification was that we had um, not behaved well during this pandemic. There had been no equity. Poor countries had not received vaccines. Um, they hadn't received other things. And uh, there was no fairness. Um, so we need to do it, needed to do it differently, and we needed a central organization to manage pandemics in the future. Um, so the idea was we'd, we'd have a new pandemic treaty, which has never been established before, and the WHO would also entirely amend its existing international health regulations to make them more amenable to the management of pandemics. I'm going to stop it there. And one of the big things here, you know, the U.S. was a big part of this. You know, they, they did a pretty good job of scaring the crap out of people in this country and, and suckering people into taking the COVID jabs and killing a lot of folks and that kind of thing. You know, worldwide, between 17 and 20 million, million people now, it's known, are dead from the COVID jabs. The disease didn't kill anywhere near that. The thing is, is many countries, you know, most of the countries in Africa, did not sign on to it. They didn't have any problem because the vast majority of people there had already been taking a regular regimen of hydroxychloroquine for malaria, which kept them from getting the COVID. And because of that, you know, and the same thing in South America, you know, except for bigger cities and stuff like that in some of the, the bigger countries, um, there were some issues. But in the bush and places like that, it wasn't really a problem. And as a result, they didn't get to kill as many people as they wanted to because those people weren't getting the vaccines. So that's the thing. You know, the whole idea is the next time it comes around, we want to kill a whole lot more than we did this time. That's what it boils down to. We've got to stand up against this in no uncertain terms. And the sooner we do it, the better. But anyway, we are pretty much out of time for this episode. We shall be back in one hour on the same platform, and we're going to be discussing, I think, some uh, preparedness and that kind of stuff along uh, with some of these things. Uh, we'll also be back same bat time, same bat channel Thursday morning. So no matter how you do it, hope to see you soon. Take care of your bodies because it's the only place you have to live. We'll see you soon. Take care and God bless. God bless.